Welcome to the True Wealth Investors Podcast, a show all about real estate investing to help increase your income, lifestyle, and impact. Welcome everyone to True Wealth Investors episode 53. Today we have a debate between me and my good friend Justin Staten from Everstar Investments. And we are having a debate on multifamily versus single family. What is the best investment asset class? It's just a good natured debate, fun and good information. Enjoy. All right, welcome everybody to the True Wealth Investors Podcast. Today, we have a debate that you actually want to watch. And I have Justin from Everstar Investments back on again today. If you remember him and his partner Cassidy, they were on episode 39, sharing about their business and the amazing things they're doing. And if you listen to that episode, they are in the multifamily space, uh, specifically apartment complexes and campgrounds. And so I thought we should have a good debate about multifamily investing versus single family investing, since I am primarily in single family and small multifamily. So, um, and after watching the first presidential debate, I guarantee you this will be more enjoyable and more entertaining than that one. So, all right. Um, if you don't know my background, I'm single families, doubles, small multifamily. So for this discussion, um, we'll talk about multifamily being five units or larger. Does that sound good, Justin? Yeah, it sounds good. All right. And so the alternative is single family or multifamily, four units or smaller. All right. So I didn't welcome you, Justin, but welcome. Thank you for joining me for this debate. Should be fun. <clears throat> yeah, Chad, thanks for uh, bringing me back to uh, debate this. Uh, I think it is a debate people are going to want to watch. Um, hopefully the next presidential debate is something people want to watch too, but uh, I'll do my best not to cut you off. And the other good thing about our debate is there's no moderator. So <laughs> That's we can right. just shoot from the hip and go with it. So I love it. We get to talk about what we want to talk about. There is no moderator <laughs> and uh, nobody to cut us off if we're a little long-winded. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but yeah, it will it will be good. And I am lighthearted about the presidential debate. I hope everybody does want to watch that as well after this one. After so, this one. Yeah, watch this one first. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So the way we were going to do it is... Um, we'll just, each of us has uh, notes for about like four or five advantages for our area of expertise. And so each of us will get to present one of those advantages and why they think theirs is better. And then the, uh, the uh, other side will argue whether they agree or not, and we'll just go from there. It's not super structured but I am quite certain we'll come down to a definitive winner by the end. <laughs> you should have people vote like uh, Ooh, go yeah. and say who won the debate, you know, is it multifamily or is it single? Cause it's not really me and you, it's multifamily versus single family. Exactly. People vote at the end, which one wins. That is a great idea. Yeah. All right. So there will be a vote at the end for which investment class wins, which investment class is better. I love it. All right. So Justin, you go ahead. You start us off with uh, your your number one advantage for multifamily investing. All right. Very good. So my number one uh, for why multifamily investing is better than single family residential is cash flow. Uh, so cash flow is king typically uh, in most businesses and cash flow is king in multifamily, even though it's only one part of the equation, but it's a big part of the equation. So typically with multifamily assets, the cash flow you can be subject to is significantly larger than single family residential uh, because you're bringing in more cash and with more cash flow means more expansion and more scale. So Single family residential, your cash flow is going to be much lower 
multifamily cash flow, it's going to be much larger. And I do have some sub points later on that I'll talk about because I actually buried those into some other pros that I have for multifamily. So I'll just stick with cash flow is king. And if cash flow is king, multifamily is the way to go. Ah, sharp. Okay. So for my for clarity, is this cash flow uh, per unit or cash flow as on a return on investment? Good question. So it is positive cash flow. So therefore, return on investment cash flow. So at the end, you know, if if you have a thirty unit or a you know fifty unit or a hundred unit, your positive cash flow can definitely range in the six figure range. Whereas if you just have you know, one single family residential house, your cash flow is going to range somewhere. You're probably going to gross, if it's a nice house, maybe 24, 12 to 24,000 a year. Um, but then after expenses, you're probably going to be seeing about 50 to 60% of that, which, you know, you're still only in the, you know, five figure range on a single family residential. Uh, whereas your cash flow uh, after expenses, um, even your you know, positive cash flow, EBITDA, whatever you want to call it, is much larger. It can range in the six figures uh, or seven fi- or six figures easy. Hmm. So yeah, return on investment. And so that's basically a na- the nature of the scale of the investment. Yeah. Like, right. for example, you may have a single family residential and you're maybe getting 10% ROI, right, on a single family. And so I would ask, and I may have a multifamily, I'm also getting 10% ROI on, right? But what's bigger, 10% of $200,000 or 10% of $20,000? Right. Cash, yep. Cash flow. <laughs> All right. I, yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that one, you know, <laughs> and due to the nature of scale, the cash flow is better. better. And even in my portfolio, the cash flow in return is better on doubles and small multis versus single family. Exactly. So, so I could see that just continuing with your 20, 30, 50, 100 units as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, Chad, what's your number one? Or do you have a follow-up? No. Uh, well, simply, I was going to say that I don't know if I've ever seen in a presidential debate, one side concede that the other side is right. <laughs> I think that never happens. That never happens. Never Although, happens. When Reagan said, I won't make age a topic of the debate, you know, Mondale actually did laugh about it and thought it was just as funny as everybody else in the room did. But that was the closest I think we've seen to a concession. Yeah. Yeah, probably. All right. So my number one, uh, number one advantage to single family or, f- or small multi was that single families, small multis have a low barrier of entry, that it doesn't take very much capital and it doesn't take a lot of experience. There are many deals uh, available and it's an easy way to get into real estate. So even if somebody's going a very traditional route and getting a conventional loan to finance the deal, they could find a deal on MLS, easily get a conventional loan, and it's not going to cost them very much money out of pocket. Yes, that is very true. And it's funny you that's your number one, because I think I have, and I actually did more than like five or six. I wrote like several, <laughs> several boosts so I could have a nice repertoire. But my, I have one of uh, the benefits of multifamily is there is a high barrier to entry, which means typically less competition. So you're right. The single family world has a smaller barrier, uh, but it can be oftentimes more flooded with competition because everybody, um, you know, tries to get in uh, when they start real estate, they're going to start with single family residential. So it can make it sometimes more difficult to get uh, until you get to be like an old pro like Chad. It can be difficult to find those good deals when there's a lot of competition. Uh, so it's funny because I actually put as a as a pro or a plus for multifamily high barrier of entry, your competition is less. All right. So, so basically on that one, we're seeing the positives of both sides. <laughs> there is a low barrier of entry to single family homes. That is a plus. It is a plus. Yes. You can get your feet wet. Yeah. It's easy to enter. It's easy to get your foot wet and step into bigger things. Much bigger things. Yep. All right. 
Let's hear your second. Oh, yeah, number two. Uh, and do we have like a time, two-minute time limit like the presidential debates or is we just – Yes, I'll, I'll start uh, really getting after you at, at okay. the two-minute mark and, and speak whenever call. you speak and jump in. <laughs> I just broke our first rule of debate. Uh, uh, number two, going back to cash flow, um, I put more cash flow protection in multifamily. And here's what I mean by that, i.e., if you own a 20 unit building or a 30 or a 40 and two or three or four people move out, doesn't matter. You still have everybody else there paying rent and you're still making money on that asset. We underwrite most of our stuff down downwards of 70 to 75% economic occupancy. So I believe that's a plus because people can move in and out and your asset is still cash flowing positive. Whereas if you just rent out a single family residential and one person moves out, your cash flow has also ended on that investment until you move somebody else back in. Interesting, because my number three benefit oh, no. is the exact opposite <laughs> of yours. <laughs> so well, let's do the counter. <laughs> so I was looking at, let's say you have a an apartment complex with 30 units and I have 30 single family homes spread out across the city. To me, the single family homes seem lower risk because if I have one problem tenant, let's say an atrocious problem tenant, it only affects one house or one door. But if you have one terrible tenant in your 30 unit complex, it could affect many tenants, whether you're, you start attracting bad tenants because you put up with them or you run off good tenants. Yeah. So to me, the single family home scene portfolio seems less risky uh, with problem tenants. Yeah. And you do bring up a valid point because we have dealt with that before where we've had one or two really problem child tenants in buildings and it did negatively affect or impact other tenants desire to be there. Um, However, comma, I will say the counter to that argument would be, uh, at least in our organization and our portfolio, we don't waste time eliminating bad tenants. Um, so our leases are written very strictly. Um, whereas if you become, there's only certain things that are going to make you a problem tenant. One of those could be like noise complaints, leaving, you know, junk cars in the parking lot or, you know, the stuff that would push off uh, would be um, future residents or current residents. And we have stipulations in our lease for all of those items. So when we have a, or encounter a problem tenant, we typically uh, have it in there somewhere where they violated their lease, giving, given the problems that they're causing. Those problems are somewhere going to show up in our lease as a violation and we'll get rid of them. And we have found if you do that, you typically don't run off uh, current tenants or future tenants. So uh, but you do make a valid point that you could be insulated with a single family residential if you just got one property, one problem tenant, you're not affecting the whole portfolio or the whole asset, if you will. So, but sure. I do believe my point stands. If you have to kick out a problem tenant or somebody leaves, that asset has no cash flow. Whereas my Correct. asset that I paid for is still cash flow, very positive. I, yes, I concede if it's a 30 unit <laughs> complex versus one single family house, there is higher risk with that one tenant leaving. Exactly. I think it is comparable if you have a 30 unit complex or a 30 unit port, 30 single family home portfolio. It is comparable. <laughs> and um, to get into, if we went down that road, which you still got to say your number two, but I have one that would actually. Uh, a pro that kind of talks about that as far as uh, efficiencies on uh, economies of scale, because it's more efficient to run 30 units under one roof than it is to run 30 separate houses spread all over a city. So mm -hmm. there's more work typically with 30 single families than there are 30 doors under one roof. But that's, I was going to save that for later. That's so. down the road. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I can mentally prepare. That one's coming. All right. <laughs> now, I had a question with, with yours. So do you think a problem, a problem tenant in a multifamily unit or complex, 
does it depend somewhat on what type of complex that is? Like if there are, is there a difference between uh, <clears throat> a multifamily complex where all the exits are on the outside versus a central hallway or does yeah. that really play a part in it? It can, um, you know, so you got your, basically your three different types of properties in your multifamily. You got your garden style, which are, you know, several buildings throughout the property with everybody has their own entrance uh, and exit. There's, there's no common um, entrance for your units. You've got wrap style communities, which are all enclosed. So you got to go in a lobby or down a hallway to get to your room. And there's usually it can be exterior parking or a parking garage. That's called wrap. And then you got high rise, which again, with high rise, you got to go in through a lobby. You got to, you know, hit hallways and stuff to get to your unit. And I think that the garden style communities are typically uh, better for that with the, the problem tenants where they have their own exit and entrance into their unit. They don't have to go past other people's doors typically. Um, and if you do, it's just your immediate neighbor. Um, so I, I do think there's some benefits with garden style. Um, the noise complaints are typically less at garden style, depending on how the property was built out. Um, and the wrap types and the high rise types are typically your, your units are side by side or back to back. Um, so you, you do, you'll get some more of those like noise complaints on those bad apple tenants more than anything. Um, and as long as you're policing your, your wrap style and your high rises, uh, your common areas are typically very clean, very well lit, um, and anybody leaves anything around, you're on them instantly. Property management should be on them to get that stuff cleaned up and out of the common space. So, so I don't know. I would say you you probably have more luck on the garden style, but uh, if a problem tenant's a problem tenant, um, and they're going to create havoc no matter what property they're in, unfortunately. So, and we have that a little is, bit of both. Yeah, that's the truth. Problem yeah. tenant. <laughs> yeah, that goes to screening, which I don't know if you have that or not on one of your pros uh, or cons, but uh, a lot of that goes to screening. Just making sure that you're screening your tenants properly uh, and you can avoid a lot of bad tenants that way. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Screening tenants, training tenants, and then yes. managing tenants or right. escorting out those that, that won't train. That failed to train. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. So uh, my next benefit to single family, small multis, is that there is less risk uh, with a single family portfolio spread out across the city um, versus multifamily. Because if an area changes, if there is some major issue with that area, say the school system loses funding or there's some major construction which affects the area, then it, for a single family portfolio, it doesn't affect the whole portfolio. It would affect whatever units are in that area, but the rest of the portfolio would be insulated from that. So to me, that seems like less risk because I have essentially my assets spread out across a larger area compared to one unit or one complex with all of my units in it. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, no, I think that's a, actually a very valid point. Um, and if you're buying multifamily at scale, you can accomplish the same thing by um, making sure that you're buying in multiple markets um, rather than, and then making sure that in those markets you're getting in the best areas, but you're absolutely right. Um, in the sense that if you're spreading your single families out over a, like a local market or your local city, um, you typically can avoid any of those downfalls. And, you know, cities like Detroit come to mind, you know, when the, when the automotive uh, manufacturing um, industry collapsed back in 07, 08, uh, parts of Detroit that were otherwise, you know, doing well economically and they were decimated. So if you had just a, say a 50 unit apartment building in one of those areas, you would have been hurting. Um, you, you would have lost out on valuation. You would have lost out on cash flow due to probably having the lower rents. You would have probably vacancies would have went up. Um, so yeah, I think that's a very valid point um, that you can insulate by spreading out single families over a market. Hundred percent. All right. Sure. Well, let's just end it right there. I, I got Cadwins. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I've got more. I got more. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Uh, no, but yeah, the counter to that though would be on the multifamily side, which again, this is a barrier to entry type thing um, because multifamily assets are more expensive in nature. Uh, but you would want to buy in multiple different marketplaces to have that portfolio insulation uh, to down economies because um, some markets are just hurt more than others depending on what part of the economy uh, is being affected. Yeah, I can see that. I can see if if you're buying multifamily assets, it's easier to have 30 units in uh, one in Dayton, let's say, and 30 units in Columbus and 30 units in Canton. Right. Exactly. You know, three very you know uh, varied markets as opposed to single family home buyer. I'll buy in different areas of the city, um, especially since we self manage. But I'm I'm not looking at single family homes in other cities, you know, completely unrelated markets. Exactly. So, yeah, I can see that as a, a good benefit, more diversified if you're planning to have multiple, you know, if you're not comparing 30 units in one complex compared to 30 single family homes, if you're comparing multiple complexes. Yeah, and the way to that point, to, to illustrate it just a little bit further, if you bought, you know, 30 single families in the Dayton area and had it spread out all over Dayton in the suburbs, and and I just had one 30-unit property in any suburb of Dayton, and that, let's look at the Moraine plant, right, there in Dayton. So, you look at Moraine, West Carrollton, um, let's say I bought a 30-unit there, and you had your 30 single families spread all over Dayton, uh, when that plant shut down, my 30 unit would could possibly have been decimated if it was in Moraine or West Carrollton, whereas your portfolio would have been better insulated under that. Um, yeah. I think that's a perfect example, at least for those that understand Dayton, Ohio and the Dayton market. Um, that's, I think, a, a good way to illustrate, you know, what, what you're going for there is in a, in a singular market with single family, you can spread the risk out. Yeah, completely. And a more, you know, another odd example that I never would have foreseen recently was that some school systems with COVID restrictions decided to be online yep. and did not offer fall sports. Yes. Other school systems were in person and offered fall sports. And we suddenly had a whole bunch of applicants leaving the areas without fall sports because, you know, it was their child's junior year, senior year. Um, and there was no way to foresee that suddenly you would have a lot of people trying to leave one school system for another. So yeah, exactly. And it's just those that all known. So I think the real lesson there and the key takeaway, if you're going to vote for real estate this year in the election would be diversify your portfolio, insulate it, you know, whether you're in a singular market, spread it out over multiple suburbs or areas. Um, uh, and if you're going to buy multifamily, make sure you're buying in more than one market. Don't overload, you know, all your units in, in one a metropolitan area. Yeah. Sharp. All right. Are you up with your advantages or is it back to me? I forget where we're at. I'm at number three, I think. I think I'm on my going on my third advantage to multifamily assets. And my number three is commercial lending versus single family home loans. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people are probably going to go, well, wait a minute, you know, how it's not easy to get commercial loan. And that's why I'm bringing it up because the commercial lending standards are actually better than buying a single family residential. And I would argue that it's easier to buy commercial asset with a commercial type loan product than it is to buy single family residential. Uh, mainly because the lending standards for commercial buying are different. The primary difference is with a commercial loan and a commercial asset like um, an apartment building, uh, they value, I would say, more so or equal to um, the cash flow or the profitability of the property than they do the uh, borrowing ability of the, the person who's trying to get the loan. So meaning said more simpler, uh, commercial lenders, they will look at the asset as a business. So they give it a valuation based off of its NOI, its net operating income. Um, and the loan is oftentimes based more on the NOI of the property than it is your ability to borrow money. Um, so uh, if you can come up with the down payment, whether that's 20 or 25% and it has a solid NOI, you're going to get that commercial loan. 
uh, even if you had a 600, 625 credit score, oftentimes, if you can come up with a down payment, you're more likely than not going to get the loan. Whereas, and, and there's less restrictions too. Um, as you know, as far as like how you get the money, where the money comes from, uh, there, there, the restrictions are not as hardcore as they are now for single family residential, mainly due to the financial collapse and the collateralizing of uh, mortgage securities that, you know, Dodd-Frank kind of changed a lot of the lending requirements for single family residential, which made it more difficult to buy a property. So I would say a pro for commercial properties and multifamily assets is the commercial lending packages are easier to get than a single family residential loan. Interesting. Because I didn't have this on my list, but just to argue the other side, to me, it seems like you have more flexibility within the single family realm with your purchasing. So I can, if my purchase price is 50,000 for a single family home, I feel like I have the freedom, well, from personal experience, I have the freedom I can raise that money very easily from a private lender mm -hmm. to buy that property. I could get seller financing completely from the seller for that property, or I could go the route of trying to have a bank or hard money lender or something more traditional. Sure. Where I, from my perspective, it would be harder if that's, if it's not a $50,000 single family, if it's a, let's say $500,000 multifamily, it's going to be harder to find that private lender who can completely fund it, or it's going to be harder to find that deal where the seller will completely finance that sale. Right. So spoiler <laughs> alert. Uh, and I actually had this as like my number four or five and, and, but uh, how you can still burr multifamilies because everybody's aware of burr now, yeah. but to that same point, just like you can still burr commercial multifamilies, everything you just said, you can also do in the, in the multifamily realm. So you can get hard money for a multifamily. You can get a bridge loan for multifamily, which a lot of hard money lenders will provide. You can technically do delayed financing uh, for a multifamily asset. And trust me when I say that there are private money lenders out there uh, that can stroke checks for half a million dollars, but they will only, the only thing that gets them excited to stroke those checks are multifamily assets. If you came to them with a few houses, they're gonna be like, ah, yeah, I could write you a check for 60, 70,000, but it's, the money's not big enough. But if you go to them and say, I need a check for 500,000, and just so and the listeners out there understand, trust me when I say there are plenty of private money lenders out there that can stroke checks for half a million dollars, $100,000, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's not a stretch. And I know sometimes when we're starting out in real estate, one of the things that we think about is where am I gonna get the money from? Um, yeah. And we don't really have um, reference, right, to how much money is actually out there in our, you know, ecosystem. And it's a lot of money. Like, it's a lot, a lot of money. And there are individuals out there that will stroke those checks. So you can run. I, I know what you're saying with the flexibility. My counter argument to the flexibility of single family would be you have the same flexibility with multifamily the ask is just bigger. And that's what scares people away, right? Yeah. You got to find the people that can stroke the half a million dollar checks instead of the $70,000 checks. All right. So my, my, my second counter would be <laughs> my counter to your counter. Um, if you are starting out, if a person's starting out and they're just looking for private lenders, Definitely, they could get a private lender who's going to write a check for five hundred thousand. But more likely, they're going to find the fifty thousand dollar lender first. Even if they find that person with five hundred thousand dollars there, if it's their first deal and they're getting into real estate, the lender is going to be more open to the fifty thousand dollar loan. Yes, and I I will have to concede that point because it is true. <laughs> that it is just from a true, just a straight probability uh, standpoint, it, your probability of success at getting 50,000 is much greater than getting 500,000. The other thing with the $500,000 ask is that individual is probably a sophisticated investor and they wanna know what your experience level is in dealing in multifamily assets. 
So you're, I absolutely 100% will concede that point because that $500,000 check is only coming if you know what you're doing and can prove that you know what you're doing or at least partner with somebody that knows what they're doing. Yes. Yeah. Very, very good point. Either way, the number one takeaway from that point is whether you are in single family or large multifamily, private money is a great source of funding. Yes. So if you're not, in private money, if you're not raising private money, if you don't have experience with private money, definitely uh, research that because it is a great tool for you to use. We have a bunch of previous episodes in the podcast where you can find out more information on that, but definitely figure out private money. Please figure out private money. All right, Chad, what's your number three? All right. I already did my number three. I kind of did mine out of order, Um, but my number Four. Okay. Number four is that single family homes, if in comparable areas, let's say we're talking about like a B area, single family home to a B area apartment complex, single family homes will draw tenants that are lower maintenance and you will have less turnover with your single family homes. Hmm. So let's clarify this a little bit more. So why do you feel that if it's like a B area that you'll have less turnover? Well, okay. I'm saying if we're just comparing apples to apples, right? Whether that's A area, single family home to A area apartment, B area, single family home to B area apartment. I don't want to compare an A area, single family home to a D area apartment complex and say that that single family home tenant is more stable. So if we're comparing comparable areas, I would argue that a single family home tenant is a more stable tenant that because they're renting a single family home, they, their single family house, they consider it more a home. Um, they plan to stay there longer. There will be uh, less turnover with that home. I think you have uh, lower turnover rates with single family homes compared to multifamily. And it's just a different class of resident. Mm. That's my argument. So I would say that's true depending on the demographics of that class B area. Because what I would, my counter argument would be is if your demographics are folks, you know, middle age or, you know, between the ages of 35 and 45 with two to three children per household, then I would agree 100% that uh, that would be true because, you know, it's the price point. They're typically paying a little bit more for a whole house than they would for a two or three bedroom apartment. Uh, so, so they probably want the home feeling more than an apartment feel. But if that same B area was a demographic of 20 somethings that uh, are career minded or just coming out of college or whatever, uh, then I would argue that that multifamily asset in that same B area would actually perform better uh, and be 96 to 98% occupied due to the demographics of that area. And that is one thing that we do in our underwriting is look at the demographics of that area to see how popular apartments or renting apartments versus renting homes uh, is for that specific area and marketplace. So I think if you look at it singularly uh, or linearly down a straight line, your argument holds up. But when you really look at demographics in certain areas, because let's use Columbus for an example, lots of suburbs, lots of submarkets of Columbus, and each submarket carries a slightly different demographic uh, as far as where people are and their age, family, uh, income, et cetera, et cetera. So, and you have more than one B market or submarket in Columbus uh, yeah. so, with different demographics. So I yeah. would say really realize on those demographics. That's a good point. Um, and as an extreme case, a college town demographic is going to be much different. Much different. And if you rent a single family residential in a college town, prepare for that bad boy to be destroyed. Yeah. Oh, I've got this five bedroom, single family. (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) Well, my buddies are moving in. Yep. So unless you rent it out to like a sorority or something, then then you might be okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. The demographic matters. Yeah. Good. Demographics matter. Okay. 
Give me your number four. What do you got? Number four. Uh, let me, I got to pull my notes on my phone back up. Oh yeah. I kind of mentioned this earlier. Number four, benefit of multifamily to single family. Remember number one guys, cash flow. Uh, so my number four is you can still burr uh, with multifamily assets. And as a matter of fact, that is our business model uh, with our multifamily portfolio is burring essentially. We buy, we rehab, we rent, we refi, and then we repeat, right? We just keep doing it over and over and over again because our strategy is very similar. We essentially burr multifamily assets. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, get into, because of the low barrier of entry that you mentioned, get into a single family because of that low barrier to build a portfolio. And what I would say is you can also get into multifamily to burr because you have to burr to keep the cash coming in, right? That refi, getting your capital back out of an asset is so important if you want to scale and grow. Uh, you can't sock all your money into properties and expect to keep buying properties. You, you'll run out of money at some point. Um, so that burr strategy works just as well with multifamily assets as it does with single family. So my vote is that you just go for the gusto and start with some commercial multifamily assets and burr those, start with a 10 unit. And before you know it, you'll be buying 150 unit, a 200 unit, you know, three, four or five years down the road. That's my number four. That's an interesting point. It, it is very interesting because you guys are burring multifamily and that's how I have bought two thirds of my portfolio is doing burr deals with single family. So it is interesting that that works so well in uh, both asset classes. So for me to think through that, because I never have <clears throat> looked at a multifamily to burr, right? Yep. So in just me looking at it, with a single family, I need to purchase that house at a, at a steep discount because if I raise the rent, that doesn't increase the value for me to refinance, right? right? So I, the only thing that increases that value really is the remodel. So I have to purchase it at a deep discount and I have to be efficient with the remodel to be able to burn it and get all my money back. I can see with you guys and the multifamily, that's a really a great benefit for the burr is that if you can be can raise rents and be more efficient with your management, that drastically increases the property value and the amount you can get back. Exactly. And that was actually another benefit uh, that I was going to talk about in our debate uh, pro for multifamily is the way that they're uh, valued. So you've nailed it right on the head. It, you know, with a single family residential, the only way you're going to increase that value, your, your amount of rent has no bearing on the value of that single family residential property. The only thing that has a bearing on that is an appraisal value. So the only way to get a higher appraisal is to actually spend more money improving that asset and then getting a higher appraisal. Whereas on the commercial multifamily side, your value is derived uh, 100% from NOI. So for an example, we could buy a, just a poor performing asset in the multifamily world, meaning maybe they're $200 off market rent across the board, or maybe they're not charging enough for pet rent and all this stuff. And I can go in and not even spend a dime on upgrades and just bump rents and increase the value significantly on that asset. And to your point, when we do that, then that's more money we can pull out of that asset later in a refi or a supplemental loan, um, which is uh, more of a Fannie Freddie uh, agency debt product is a supplemental loan, but it's essentially the same as a refi. Um, so with either a refi or a supplemental, you can go pull that cash back out. Yeah. I think that's a, that is a big advantage, just the valuation and the way you can affect the valuation. Exactly. So if, in looking at that, I know you can pick up single family homes at this drastic discount or small multifamilies at a steep discount mm -hmm. so that there, when you do a rehab, there is this huge equity play, yeah. right? Which is the basis of every flip essentially. Yeah. Is, is it true or is it the same with multifamily? Can you find multifamily at a steep discount since it is valued on NOI? 
Yeah, you can. So the short answer is yes, you can find steep discounts in the multifamily world. They're typically off-market deals, mom and pop stuff that you know they've been holding for years. Um, but this is a good point that you bring up and one that I, I feel needs illustrated because in the single family residential world, price equals value. It just does. But in the multifamily world, price does not equal value, right? Because of the, the valuation based off of NOI. And here's what I mean by that. Um, you're in the single family residential, you have to look for those steep discounts because you know, price equals value, right? Yeah. It, it just is. So yeah. you have to look for discounts to make money in the single family realm. But on the multifamily realm, price does not equal value. For the example that I gave you a few minutes ago, I can find an asset that is two to $300 off of market rent that really just maybe needs a facelift, just surface improvements, uh, things that you'll see, the aesthetics of it, which costs, you know, they're, you're not talking huge CapEx expenditures. Um, and I can significantly increase that value overnight. So d- depending on the cap rate for that given area, I mean, you can exponentially raise that price. So what I mean by price doesn't equal value is that asset may cost $2 million to buy, but that's not necessarily its value if they're $200, $300 off market rent. If they're two, $300 off market rent, their value is probably closer to $6 million, but they just don't have the NOI to show that. So they have to sell it on the prevailing cap rate. So price does not equal value in the commercial multifamily space. It is, yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's interesting. I think it's very interesting because they are so different. Yeah. So, for your multifamily deal, you're looking at if the if that neighborhood, let's say, sells at an eight cap, then you find an apartment complex at an eight cap that could still be a. I mean, you're buying it at value, right? Because it's at the cap rate. But if the efficiency of the units, the rents are low, or there's no pet rent, or whatever that instance is, if the efficiency of the units is very low, then you are getting it at a steep discount, right? Even though you are paying the current value. Well, and I'll do a quick illustration for those who are seeing the video. I'll just pop this up real quick. And let's just say I found a property that's, uh, we'll say it's a 50 unit property, um, they're, they're getting $500 a month rent. The rents, you know, that the rents could be 700. So we got 50 units. Let's say the eight cap, the cap is an eight cap, like you just mentioned, right? So I'm going to go, uh, 50 units times 500. Cause we're, we're assuming they get 500 a month in market rent. So that's 20, uh, 5,000 a month times 12 months. That's 300,000 in gross, uh, rents coming in. Now let's just say they have 50% margins. Okay. So I'm going to take off half. So we'll times that by 50%. So that's $150,000 of NOI. And we said it's trading at an eight cap, right? So I'm going to go ahead and divide that NOI by 8%. So they would list that property for 1.875. Okay. So $1.8 million would be the price. But I know based off my due diligence and research that the going rents in that market are 700. So if I just take that 700 times 50, okay, that's 35,000 a month times 12, that's 420,000 in gross. And I'm going to say that I'm going to operate at the same 50% margins, which we would actually operate a little bit better than that probably. Uh, That's $210,000 of NOI. Now, Here's where I say price doesn't equal value because I'm going to pay 1.8 million, but I know within 12 months, I can get those rents up or 24 months, I can get those rents up. And if I take my new NOI of 210,000 and I divide that by that same eight cap, that property is now worth $2.6 million. So in the multifamily world, price does not equal value because when I see that asset that's 200 off market, I'm saying, well, they want 1.8, which most people go, well, that's not a steep discount. Right. That's not right. I'm not getting a steep discount there at all. It's $1.1. Yeah. At market. I look at it. Yeah. At market. But I look at that same property as being worth $2.6 million, not 1.8. So in my mind, I'm buying a $2.6 million asset in 24 months for 1.8, meaning that's a $775,000 increase. Now that $775,000 is the part of the portion that I will pull out in a refi or a supplemental loan. 
uh, mind you, it's all tax free uh, when you pull it out. So, so the numbers right. are just quite bigger. So price doesn't equal value. Uh, that's the takeaway just because of the valuation difference in those assets. I love it. I love it. I love that, um, you know, the birth strategy is the same. It is. It's just that how you figure that valuation and what a distressed property or a great, you know, deal is, is different. It is. Um, and so I, I really like, I like the birth strategy numbers wise. I haven't done it. I've seen your deals, but numbers wise, I think the birth strategy with multifamily is awesome. It so. is. And, and I don't, I oversimplified that for everybody listening. That was an oversimplification. There go, there's way more that goes into underwriting these assets than just that, that I did, but that it, it doesn't go a ton deeper than that. So that is the basis of how we look for deals in the multifamily world. I love the example too. So thanks for doing that with the calculator and everything. Yeah. <laughs> High budget debate, folks. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll concede with you on that one. I like the multifamily burr. I like that you can buy an asset essentially at value and increase that value through management. And that's awesome. Yeah, good, that's good stuff. What do you got next? All right. Number five. Oh man, there's no way you can argue with this one. I got you on this one. <laughs> Not the edge of my seat. Yeah. An advantage to single family. They are easier to sell. I can sell them to a much wider pool, whether that be investor, retail. I can sell them to a much wider pool of people and get rid of it e quicker and easier. Hmm. What do you think? So for those of you listening, you probably think Chad has me dead to rights on this one. However, comma, <laughs> my retort to this would be, that is true, you have a broader group of people who would buy a single family home. However, in the multifamily space, the pool of money is much larger. Mm. What do I mean by that? Interesting. Everybody in the money world buys multifamily assets. They have to, they have to place their money. So you've got institutional investors that are in the multifamily space. So there are fewer institutional investors than there are people, obviously, that would be in the market to buy a single family residential home, but their pools of money are much larger than all the people out there looking to buy single family residential homes. So you're right, but you're wrong at the same time because there's more money out there that can buy multifamily assets than there are that can buy single family residential homes. That would be my retort. Hmm. I because, can see that, but I still might stick to my point here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good point. And, and here's the thing. It's like, I think where you win on that point is I, the, the, how much difficult is it to sell a, a house that say has a price tag of $125,000, $150,000 versus buying a multifamily property that's a $1.5 million. You know, you're not going to have, you know, everybody driving by and doing an open house and all that. So that's not going to happen in a multifamily space. Um, so you do have to look a little bit more far and wide to find those big pools of money in the multifamily space, but they are out there. Yes. And I think I, I could see that in the multifamily realm, there's probably less fluctuation with like a buyer's market versus a seller's market because there is always money there looking for an investment property or looking for that return um, where single family home market will fluctuate with um, whether people are looking to move, whether people are scared, um, you know, I, I think there's more emotional fluctuation in the single family home market. There is. Yeah. yeah. And you just got to keep in mind on the multifamily world, what, what I meant by institutional investors. So everybody's 401k. If you've got mutual funds, if you have life insurance products or car insurance products or whatever, keep in mind, those are all pools of money that end up in the multifamily space from institutional investors. So those guys managing your funds in your 401k or all, that they're placing money uh, all your biggest financial firms have multifamily um, 
uh, offices um, or parts of their company and their investment strategy, even your insurance company. So all your car insurance companies, um, your life insurance companies, uh, they are also investing in multifamily assets, typically through debt from the insurance companies. Um, but yes, the, those big pools of money are out there buying up multifamily. And there's a few like Blackstone, for example, Blackstone still buys huge sums of single family residential uh, properties as well all over the country. Uh, they're actually one of the largest holders of real estate in the country. Um, so, so yeah, they're, they're, those pools of money are quite large. And if you're investing in any way, shape and form, I guarantee there's a portion of your portfolio that's in a multifamily asset somewhere in this country. Interesting. Yep. And I think you can make a good argument that if uh, large corporations, if they look at real estate or, you know, debt structures with secured by real estate as a safe, secure way to put their place to put their money to get a fixed return, then they're in the business of doing that, that it, you know, that is a secured right. way to get a fixed return on your money. hundred percent. So, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So my question to you would be though, let's just say, Chad, you, you, you know, bought 125 single family residential homes. Would you want to sell them off piece by piece? Um, so let's say that you're, you're listening to this and you're like, I'm an investor, I'm building my empire. I want to build my portfolio and you get to 125 homes. You know, are you going to try to sell that off piece by piece or are you going to try to sell it off as a portfolio? And what do you think, the uh, the odds are that that's going to be an easy uh, disposition strategy once you've built your portfolio of single family residentials to over a hundred doors. How easy is it going to be to sell off that portfolio? Do you think? Interesting. Now, I, so on one hand, I would not foresee that I would be trying to sell my entire portfolio at once. So. I can see that I would be transitioning from one type of single family to another type of single family or maybe selling 10 to go into multifamily, something like that. Um, so changing my assets, but I would doubt that I would sell everything all at once. Yeah. Um, however, if I did need to sell everything all at once, my initial thought is that it would be harder. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Especially if I'm trying to sell it as one package. Right. You know, that's going to be harder. Yeah. However, logically, if I'm trying to sell one house and I list it with the realtor and they put it on the market and it sells at market, let's say, if I have 120 realtors all list that house, theoretically, they should all sell easily enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I theoretically, yes, but I'm just thinking <laughs> of all the work that it would take to line up 120 realtors or 120 houses. Whereas if I had 125 unit property, I go to one broker, they list it, they build the, the offering memorandum, they send it out to everybody in the country that wants to buy multifamily assets. And I just wait for offers to come in. It's one and done, one and done, baby. And so we, so we can exit in. So my argument would be is in the multifamily world, you can exit in and out or enter or exit multifamily assets with greater ease on scale than you could single family residential. I, yeah, I a hundred percent see that. If you want to <laughs> sell 120 units, it's better to sell them in, in one closing and one property yeah. than to try and sell 120 single families. That's a bonus uh, pro. I wasn't even planning on bringing that up, but, but yeah, when you started talking about all having all those houses and how many single families do you own now? I don't know. We're 50 some door, 57 doors or 58 doors. <laughs> I don't know. 45 single families or something like that. Now, is that a pro or a con that you've bought so many that you, you tend to forget how many you own? That's a pro, man. Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That's a pro. Well, you got a good team too. You got good systems and processes built out. So that helps. Yeah, that definitely helps. That's the only way to scale and want to add more. You know, at yeah. some point, if you don't have a team working with you, then scaling is just getting more headaches. You are spending money for more headaches and that's right. no fun. Exactly. So that's a bad business model. 
So I have one more, and that's a perfect segue if you don't mind. Let's hear it. Yeah. So scale. Scalability. Uh, I believe that it is easier to scale your team uh, to help grow your business when you're buying multifamily assets. Because going back to point one, the, the positive cash flow numbers are so much larger that not only am I making enough because my my expenses for the property management themselves are covered uh, after gross income before NOI. My positive cash flow is typically large enough where you can start hiring people uh, to help grow your organization faster uh, because the money that's coming in is larger. And we're at a point now in our company where that cash flow, that free positive cash flow is starting to grow to a point where, you know, we'll be able to start bringing on employees at the corporate level, whether it be an acquisitions team or operations team um, or what have you, uh, we'll, we'll be able to start doing that at scale. Um, and, and I think that's a benefit to multifamily assets in the larger cash flow. Hmm. I can see it both ways in all honesty. Okay. Hit yeah, I can it. see that wanting to scale, if, you, if I'm adding 30 units per deal, obviously you can scale faster, mm -hmm. right? But I can also see if I'm building a team and to oversee assets, that it's easier to adapt as you add 10 units per year or 20 units per year, but they're it's a slowly evolving process, I guess. Now, that's not to say, it, you know, I know how my business would operate at 120 units. <laughs> so if I could just jump to 120 units tomorrow, well, yeah, I would want to do that, you know? <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Whereas so I, I do think the growth model and the scalability of multifamily is awesome and a, and a benefit. I think for some people, there is a sense of a learning curve because let's say one 30-unit complex. A 30-unit complex probably will not pay, you know, will not pay for a property manager. You're going to have to have that managed by a management company. So if they were to try to self-manage, let's say, that's a steep learning curve going from zero to 30. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's 30 units maintenance-wise, 30 tenants management-wise, you know, it's a, it's a steep learning curve. Where if you're adding, let's say, five units over a year, 10 units over the next year, you as an owner and property manager can scale your knowledge and your abilities and, and what you're able to manage with that portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good point. That is, uh, I just, I guess it would come down to, you know, do you want to scale, um, you know, at a nice even pace or are you looking to go from, you know, 50 to a thousand units. And if you're looking to go to a thousand, uh, multifamily is probably the way to go, but you're right. There is a steep learning curve. And I, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I tend to forget, um, that learning curve. Um, you know, once you've done it and you've been, in, uh, you know, immersed in it and, you know, you've been around it and, <clears throat> and you've dealt with it and managed it and, and built processes from it, you forget what it was like, you know, the first time that you were managing multiple units, um, so yeah, there is a steep learning curve there. And if you're not ready for it, it is going to knock you over. Um, so, but yeah, to me, that's a pro. Maybe to some, it's a con. Because you <laughs> sink or swim, baby. Sink or swim. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sounds like I'm, I'm hearing a Grant Cardone devotee saying all or nothing, baby. All or nothing. That's right. I'm either going for gold or living under a bridge in my van. There's no in between, baby. In actuality, my personality is to jump off the cliff and yeah. figure out, I'll figure out how to fly before I hit bottom. We're going to figure out how to make a parachute on the way down. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So I can relate. <laughs> and, and I guess maybe that's, I guess, I don't know if you have a point on this in the debate, but neither one of us have talked about, you know, the types of, you know, personalities that it takes. Cause, and I'll ask you the question, do you feel the personality is different for those that um, stay in the single family residential space versus those who uh, primarily evolve in the multifamily space? 
You know, interestingly, I was thinking about this before we talked because, you know, thinking, is there one truly better class? You know, mm -hmm. should any single family home investor eventually work into multifamily? Um, and initially I thought, yes, but it, when I really think about it, there are many very successful investors who have hundreds of single family. Yep. And so I don't know if that's a personality issue or if it's simply preference or I don't know what the distinction is. I tend to think there are true benefits to both. Yeah. And some of it just comes down to preference. Yes. You know, no, that's what I was going to say. Preference. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I think it really, at the end of the day, boils down to, you know, what do you want from life, right? Whether you're going to go down the single family track or go down the multifamily track, either or, you know, how many assets are you going to buy on each side of that, that fork in the road really all boils down to is what's your preference? You know, what kind of lifestyle do you want? What, uh, you know, what, when is enough enough? You know, when is, are you okay to just, you know, say I'm good here and, and stop. And, and I think as good and as fun as this debate is and going back and forth saying, you know, which, which asset class is better. The truth of the matter is, and I'm glad we did this, but the truth of the matter is, is just being an investor in general, whether you're going down the single family residential route or the multifamily is I believe that one of the best routes you can go down, just being a real estate investor, just getting out there and getting your feet wet because the freedoms that come with it, uh, the challenges, you're your own boss, you're making your own thing happen, you're building your own wealth, however big or however small you want that to be, is totally in your hands. Uh, so I do believe it really just boils down to personal preference. You know, what do you want out of it? I agree. I, I always look at that I want to build this business, you know, my, the True Wealth brand is all about, we're going to increase income, lifestyle, and impact, right? I want to build a business that gives me enough income for the lifestyle that I want, provide for my family, and enough legacy impact that I'll leave the world better after my life and, and will uh, be able to bring about the changes that I want, yeah. right? And... I, I believe anybody has the ability to do that. Real estate is the greatest tool we can use to do that. Yeah. And whether that's multifamily investing, single family investing, both of those will get you there, right? We can build a great business uh, to provide a great income, lifestyle, and impact with either asset class. 100%. Absolutely. And you and I both have seen it done both ways and a lot of wealth created, a lot of freedom created, and a lot of impact uh, happening with folks that have went down both roads. And there's a lot of people out there that, that go down both roads uh, and have both. Um, and, you yeah. know, we're kind of an example of that. Uh, we have less and less single family residential in the portfolio, but we still have some. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a valid point. So the uh, ending I think should be that no matter what investment class you're currently in, there are advantages to the alternative, yes. right? I think there are, I know the advantages of single family, but I can see a bunch of great advantages in the multifamily. So I'm definitely not going to discount any multifamily deals I see come down my path. But primarily, if somebody isn't investing yet, don't get caught up in the, should I do multifamily? Should I do single family? Just start investing. Exactly. You, you can start. change down the road. You, can, uh, you will change down the road and alter what investments you target and how you run your business. Just get going. You don't have to know how it's all going to work out. Just take that first step and get in. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's, I think maybe on the episode that we were on last time, Cassidy and I, um, <clears throat> I think one of the advice tips was just start, right? Just do a deal, just do something. Doesn't matter what that deal is. Uh, it could be a live and flip. It could be, you know, you're renting out a bedroom on Airbnb, uh, whatever, just do something and start because oftentimes is one of my favorite sayings, but clarity comes through action. 
you're not going to know what to do or how to do it or how it's going to turn out until you start. Like, so clarity comes through action. So the more you move and the more you do, the more clarity you're going to get on the direction you want to go. So just start somewhere. And, you know, we were talking before this episode, I'll give you a quick example. We were talking before this episode about the campground we just bought uh, down in Hawking Hills. And I met this couple there, um, a wonderful couple from Pennsylvania. They literally, and they flipped houses. That's, that was their real estate investment strategy is they flipped houses. And the name of their LLC was Diddly Squat. (laughs) And that name was derived from how much they knew about real estate when they started flipping houses, they knew diddly squat. They didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about anything. And the, the story is so funny because the first house they found and they bought, they were talking to a local realtor or agent there in the area. And they said, yeah, we bought this house over on this road in this area. And he goes, oh, the one by the pornographic shop. And they were like, what? There's a pornographic shop right next to the house that we just bought on our first flip. So the name was perfect for their company, but Fast forward the tape, right? They just went for it. They did it. They flipped numerous houses over the years. Now they're retired. They're driving this beautiful luxury motorhome all over the country to Alaska, uh, all on the benefits of real estate. And he lost his job in a mill out there in Pennsylvania. And 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 they started flipping houses. And you know now they're traveling the country in a luxury motorhome, uh, all paid for by their real estate investing. And they didn't know what they were doing at all. So that is yeah that is great encouragement (laughs) just get started you'll figure it out as you go you'll figure it out that's right so well definitely i appreciate you coming on justin love the debate i'm glad we were both cordial i never had to cut you off at all i mean (laughs) exactly and you didn't you didn't call me what stupid or whatever. There was some other name. No belittling comments. Yeah, no yeah. belittling. Yeah. No, shut up, man, or whatever that was. Yeah. So. So for everybody listening, definitely let us know. Um, I would love to hear from you. Which side do you like? What asset class you prefer? Maybe you could drop in the comments uh, what asset class you prefer or maybe a benefit that we didn't talk about. I'm sure there are plenty of benefits we didn't really cover uh, for either asset class. So I look forward to hearing from you. And Justin, as always, enjoyed the discussion and appreciate you coming on and look forward to talking the next time. Yeah, thanks, Chad, for bringing me back. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the True Wealth Investors podcast. Visit us at truewealthinvestors.com to find archived episodes with show notes and links mentioned in each episode. Be sure to click the subscribe button today and leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to share how the show is helping you along your real estate investing journey.